John Berardi is one of the most iconic leaders in the fitness industry. In this fascinating conversation, we discuss his humble and in some ways troubled beginnings, the founding of Precision Nutrition and its unique organizational structure, to his thoughts on mentorship, scale, and business partnership. Like partnership sounds great in those terms, but let's put it this way. Who are you willing to split all the money with? That's what a partner is, you know what I mean? Then you have the potential to do big, meaningful, high, high, high level work, you know? And then that's where you can talk about scaling, right? Scaling only happens when you're doing stuff so well, right? That the larger group of people take notice. I'm Fraser Quelch, and this is a TRX Procast where we chat with the most iconic leaders in fitness to get the inside track on what it takes to thrive and succeed in the ever-changing landscape of business, training, and life. I actually, I think of my life in kind of now at least, maybe a, the third act, but definitely two acts. The first was, you know, I was born to Italian immigrants and and pretty poor you know i mean we i grew up in a little tiny apartment with my parents and my brother over a garage you know and and mm-hmm. so and you know i think when you're really really young you don't notice that stuff you know and and it, even like the the normals in your life you know they provide relative context but you don't really know if you have a lot of stuff or not or if anyone else's experience is different than yours or not you know and you grow up with immigrants too and you have these weird things back from the old country, right? Or the sayings that your parents say or whatever. And nowadays I still laugh because I don't know, like when you, when you were a kid, right. And, and you'd be constipated, your mom, your Italian mom would give you uh, la bomba, right. Which is, it's, it's basically like a little squeezy thing that you put water in and you insert it in your child's rectum and you squeeze it up there and then it <laughs> helps flush them out. It's like a, it's like a low rent sure. version of a colonic or something, exactly. you know? And I remember like being in like third grade or something and asking the other kids about like, you know, whether, <laughs> whether they enjoyed La Pomba. <laughs> for like, what are you talking about? And then, and then, and then of course I describe it to find out that literally no one, <laughs> in my class of 30 kids uh, has ever been subjected to this. And it's, then you start to realize like, oh, my family might be different. <laughs> Even to the point, I remember like a classic story in my life is, you know, I, I was blessed to grow up in a bilingual family, right? So I can learn two languages. But when I started going to school, uh, there weren't other Italian kids around. So I used to get made fun of so much that I just stopped speaking Italian. You know, I, my mom tells me it was definitive. I came home one day and I say, I had an accent, right? So I say, mama, I know speak of that funny language ever again, you know? And it sucks as an adult because I wish that I had been speaking fluent Italian throughout my whole life and I would right. have had to relearn it as an adult. But, you know, like the, the shaping influences were definitely poverty and, um, you know, and being part of this first generation immigrant family where, you know, um, my parents didn't even finish school. Right. So, I mean, my dad's upbringing was, you know, they lived in a little tiny village in Italy 
and instead of going to school, my grandma would just bring him out to the field. She would tie a rope to his wrist and one other end to the leg of a chicken. And that would be his play companion for the day. So you could never wander off too far. Right. So, you know, this, uh, you know, the, these kind of things, you know, uh, uh, shape your childhood. And, and uh, so that these were, this was sort of the big thing, you know, and, and so my parents had a reverence for education and like professional jobs, you know what I mean? Uh, so yeah. you can become a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, but they didn't know much about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so these were certain pressures and, and driving forces, but really, I mean, the, the biggest part I, I took from them growing up was just this immense work ethic, you know, mm, yeah. um, the, you know, my parents worked multiple jobs, you know, and, and very blue collar work. And eventually they, they did well. And my dad did well enough. He saved enough money to start his own restaurant at one point, which he ran for many, many years and just retired from a few years back. Um, so, I mean, they have like really the American dream kind of story. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the hard work thing was just uh, so deeply embedded in my DNA now that, uh, you know, uh, even to this day, it's like, you know, I talk about this a lot with respect to career. Um, I knew I was always going to work hard at something. That was like, get, yeah, it was you great, know? wasn't it? Yeah. So then it's just like, hopefully I can choose something that's worth working on, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that, that was part of my early upbringing. And, you know, there's cost to the hard work ethic idea Absolutely. too. You yeah. know, I mean, I didn't learn much about strategy and, you know, I think I, I read a quote from James Clear recently. I hope I get it right. But it's, it's this idea that like, like strategy or a plan without hard work is just a daydream, right? And hard work without strategy is a nightmare, right? And that's, it really illustrates the two sides of the coin, right? You can work hard, but if it's on something not worth working on, what's the point, right? It can be miserable, right? right. So that, you know, that's the part I had to figure out later in life. And, you know, and then I had my own detours, right? Like through my high school years, I got wrapped up with the wrong crowd. I think, uh, I think, you know, I, I was born preemie, so I grew up pretty small. So I was the, the little kid with the funny Italian accent whose mom squirted water up his butt. Um, and so I definitely uh, had a desperate need to fit in. And then I carried a chip on my shoulder about when I felt like people weren't letting me fit in. And, the, and then that led me to maybe the wrong crowd, led me to a lot of drinking and drugs throughout my high school years, really terrible school performance, really terrible life performance, really terrible uh, interactions with my family. And so, you know, this all sort of culminated when I was 17, 18 in a, in a car crash, which I was for sure I was going to die in. And uh, it was actually that moment um, where my life flashed before my eyes, where I saw these scenes from my childhood. I even saw my own funeral um, with myself being lowered into the ground and my parents watching that and uh, woke me up. I was literally that night woke me up. My friends got back in the car. I said, I'm going to walk home tonight, guys. And uh, the, uh, that was it. I stopped hanging out with those guys and I, it was, this is act two. It was an abrupt, you know, car crash ending to act one and uh, opening act for two. And that's what brought me to the gym. Uh, I remember, you know, I, I, I was done high school and I was going to start working at my dad's restaurant. 
And uh, so after that crash, you know, I stopped hanging out with these guys. I would wake up at four every morning to go prep for the day at the restaurant. And when I'd be done at the restaurant, because it was a breakfast and lunch cafe, it would be around two. I'd have the whole rest of the day. And I figured I'll just start going to the gym or something like that. Right. And then that's where I met uh, probably my most influential and important mentor who owned a couple of gyms and he took me under his wing and taught me how to train and gave me a job at the gym. So, I mean, me being in the health and fitness industry is a direct relationship to that. You know, Mm -hmm. the gym became the replacement for all the other things I was doing to self-manage, you know, right. The thing that's interesting about these Hollywood kind of pivot stories is that you generally don't hear how like lonely it is when you leave your old life behind. You know, like people recovering from drug and alcohol addictions, uh, people recovering from difficult relationships and abuse. You know, when you decide to end that portion of your life, now there's just a the void. You don't, you don't have any social relationships. So, and we know how important those are. And your coping mechanisms, drugs and alcohol in my case are gone as well. So now you're alone with no coping mechanisms. You better find something fast. And for me, I found the gym and was so lucky to find a mentor. And then that, you know, and he made me promise like, you're a smart guy. You've just been making bad choices. I'm going to give you books to read. I'm going to make you squat and deadlift. And uh, you got to promise me you go to community college and get your grades up and we're going to send you to university and we're going to turn this thing around. And so, you know, for many years, that promise was the fuel that I used to get through. And then bodybuilding, you know, which is what he taught me, Um, taught me a kind of discipline and goal orientedness that uh, translated really well to academics, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that was really the major pivot point that sort of set off the cascade that was go and get a master's, go and get a PhD, uh, start this business, you know, culminated in precision nutrition, you know, which was really like, cool. I got the training, you know, uh, now I, I get to help people in the biggest possible way kind of as a, you know, payback, you know, or pay it forward for uh, what was done for me. So, I mean, wow, there's, there's incredible amount there. And thank you for sharing. I've heard you talk about some of that stuff before, but I mean, that's, um, it's, it's, it's going deep and I really appreciate it. I'm struck by a couple things by what you just said. One, the contrast is astonishing. You know, the contrast between the pathway you were on towards, you know, the end of your high school years and just mm-hmm. after to, you know, the transformational event that, that you did and, and then into, like, talk about a 180 degree mm-hmm. shift of, yeah. of um, and, and, and to, your, to your credit, what you say, I think about around the social piece can't be understated, like who you surround yourself with the importance of mentorship. Uh, we could probably talk for an hour just on, just mm-hmm. on that. Um, but that, that 180 degree shift and then filling the void with, you know, what, um, with, with, with positivity or, or, mm. or, or positive choices and it sounds like incredibly positive people. Can you talk a little bit about that idea of the importance of finding that mentor, hopefully for most people, not out of, um, Mm-hmm. A bounce off of rock bottom, which it sounded like was was your wake up. But uh, you know, if you're if you're in business and trying to go forward into an, a realm that's you know relatively unknown or mm-hmm. new, that finding finding that mentor and and how have you found other mentors along the way? Like yeah. as, as you've gone, 
Yeah, it's it's great. I love unpacking this subject. Um, and I think there's a bunch of different answers. You know, I actually wrote about it in Changemaker. You know, I contrast my style with Nate Green, who's someone I've worked with for a really long time, who's right. been very successful too. And he's got a super intentional approach to mentorship. But, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, it all just reminds me, you know, um, there's, uh, there's someone in my life right now who uh, one of, uh, so he has a son who plays with one of my children mm-hmm. and uh, he's, you know, recovering from addiction right now as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people look at my life now and they're just like, you know, when I explain the past and they're like, no way, like yeah. really, you know what I mean? Um, but it's like, yeah, man, like this, I've been through what you're going through now. And, you know, I don't want to impose any advice on you, but you know, if you're struggling with things, come talk to me. So, but it's really interesting because now being in the position of like, potential mentor for people, mm-hmm. I can speak not only to how a mentee might approach going to find a mentor, but what a mentor is looking for. Because I think that's what a lot of young people are completely missing. They're like, how do I find a mentor? I need someone to help me. It's very internally, individually focused. It's gotta be, and I'm it's like, like, it can't be just a one-way street. Yeah you, ha- yeah. you have to begin with what would someone who's, this may be crass way of putting it, but above your station in life, mm-hmm. what would they want out of this? Right. Right. Because you have to bring that in exchange. I mean, uh, mentors know who's just there to milk them for whatever they know. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's so obvious and easy to spot. And and we don't want anything to do with that. And even with this guy, who's a nice guy. So I started helping him, you know, our our kids Mm -hmm. play together, like I said, but I'm always testing and evaluating, like, how far am I willing to go to help? Like, how much (laughs) do I want to? Can I, you know, it, it, because you're, you're, doing a bunch of emotional labor. If you enter in, into that kind of agreement, is this person worth investing that in, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm always testing that with potential mentees, you know, and I, you know, and I what learned, they do with the information you give them. That's right. You know, so I mean, I learned this, that first mentor I talked about, um, our first interaction really was I was in the gym by myself doing leg presses and, you know, it was the beginning of my journey and I was probably doing them badly. And he came over and gave me some tips, right? Right. And so he was like, hey, uh, you seem really interested in this. And I've seen you coming around a lot lately. Would you like to come train with me one day? And I was like, oh, that's cool. I've never seen you train before. Although he was, he was big. He was like 240, 5'8". You know? uh, and so uh, I was like, yeah, man, that'd be awesome. I've never seen you train before. He's like, oh, that's because I train before the gym opens. If you want um, to do this, meet me here tomorrow at 530. And little did he know I had this secret weapon, which is I, I wake up super early to open my dad's restaurant, right? right? But that was his test, right? And I learned this later. Come at 5.30 tomorrow and we'll train legs properly. So I'm going to train legs for the second day in the row, the next day at 5.30 in the morning before the gym opens. That's his test. Is this kid willing to do any of the work that would be required for it to pay off for me as the mentor as well, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when young people or even people who aren't so young, who are looking for mentorship in a new area, you and I talked about this before we started recording, like we're doing new things in our lives right now, always, you know, and and we're beginners and how do we learn? Um, You know, again, my friend Nate's approach is very, very um, intentional. He will look always scanning the world for mentors. Right. And then he, he constructs ways to meet them. I mean, I've seen him buy a plane ticket to go to an event that someone that he wants to learn from will be at. Um, and 
he has like a bit of a formula. He'll right. find time to meet this person after their talk or during their book signing or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, he'll tell them very something very specific. Like, hey, listen, you know, I've been following your work for years. I just want to thank you for your work. You know, not I'm a huge fan, uh, you know, yeah. this, this kind of stuff. But I'm, I'm, you know, I've learned a lot. Specifically, it's impacted my life in this way, right? Mm-hmm. People hear all the time, who are famous or mentor worthy, you know, um, how great they are. But when someone comes up and says, there was something specific that you did that influenced or affected me in this particular way. And here's what happened as a result. It really stays with you. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, he did this with me at an event and he gave me a gift. He gave me a book. um, And he was like, Hey, you know, I've been following you long enough. I think maybe I might know what your taste in books might be. If you haven't ever read this book, you should give it a try. And so here's this young person who came up, said they followed me, said something specific about what they learned from me, how it's impacted their life, how they applied it, and then gave me a gift. And then, and then walked away. You know, it's like, it's like courting, right? Right. If you hang around yeah. too long, it's annoying. But if you just stay long enough, do a cool thing, and then bounce, the yeah. person is intrigued and also doesn't feel put out, right? So then um, I think the next interaction was he emailed me and was like, Hey, listen, you know, we met at this thing, you know, uh, don't know if you got a chance to read the book or not, but it was really impactful for me. Um, I was wondering, I have a couple of very specific questions about X, Y, and Z. Um, I don't want to take much of your time, but is there any chance I could ask you a couple specific questions and then I'll leave you alone? You know, and it, and then that's how we started sort of forming a relationship. And then mm-hmm. eventually I ended up hiring him at PN. And really? then, uh, and he's done this with all kinds of people. I mean, uh, for those who follow the magazine Esquire, right? One of the um, most influential sort of editor-in-chiefs of men's magazines is a guy named David Granger. He's super famous for doing uh, this sort of legacy of work at Esquire. So Nate's done the same thing with him and now they have a personal friendship and he's helping out with things all the time. Phil, my business partner at PN, who I founded PN with, does the same thing. For me, I always handle it slightly differently. And I think it's, it's probably because I've been in the limelight, you know, I'm sort of the front man for precision nutrition for so many years that um, I don't seek out famous people as mentors. I, I actually look for non-famous people on purpose, you know, because mm-hmm. I because I, I know what's all wrapped up in the fame. I know, first of all, there's a lot of competition for their attention. Just because they're famous doesn't mean that they have a deep mastery of the thing that I want to learn from them, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, someone who wants to, let's say, learn nutrition from me. But it's a bad it's a bad idea because I don't work in the nutrition space. I'm not deep in the research every single day anymore, right? right. My, my focus is on something else entirely. Uh, if you go find someone famous, what you should learn from someone famous is how to get famous. You know what I mean? That's what yeah, you should sure. learn from famous people because they've navigated that really, really well. So for me, I look for people who are under the radar who are just mastering their craft. 
You know, who are the unheralded people who have mastered their craft? And then how do I learn from them? You know, and for me, I often start with um, it, what I learned from the late Charles Poliquin, you know, many, many moons ago. He taught me about this idea of the brain picking fee. He's like, you know, there's these experts in the world who are maybe unheralded, don't make a lot of money. They might be an academic at a university or whatever, and they love what they do. They love to teach it. Um, and if you were able to pick their brain for an hour, you'd maybe learn 70% of all there is to know about the thing. You don't have to read all the books and watch the documentary. You don't have to do right, all yeah, that. Yeah. You just talk to that person, right? We, we, at PN, we long called it get the guy, right? right. Well, you want to learn a thing? You want to develop mastery? You've got to begin by getting the guy or the girl who ma who's mastered that thing. Right. And uh, so he taught this to me. He's like, you just call them up. You know, if they're the university and they're the world's leading expert on X nutrient or whatever, mm -hmm. find their office number, call them up and say, hey, my name's John. I follow your work very closely. Um, what's your brain picking fee? Like, I'd like to pay you for an hour of your time. What would that cost? And, you know, honestly, eight times out of 10, zero. They're just like, no, I don't have happy a brain to, happy to, You're yeah. interested. Yeah, that's right. You know, my students barely pay attention, but here's someone calling me. This is great. You know, and then the, other, the rest of the time, the brain picking fee is really small. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I have kicked off mentorships over the years. And again, you know, it's one of the themes threading through all this is specificity. You know, you have to know what you want to learn from that person. You can't just be like, can I tell just, me what you know? Can I just hang around? Yeah. You know what I mean? No, you can't just hang around. I have a life, you know, that's annoying. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's it's specificity. It's also how you would approach any other relationship. If you're trying to make a friend or court a romantic partner, uh, you can't just walk in and be like, yo, looking for a partner. You the one? Let's get going. Let's fly to Tahoe. You know, you have to like ease into it a little bit, right? Yeah, sure. And that's what you have to do in mentors. And then you have to, have to remember um, that you have very little to offer them, but it's not zero. Um, you know, uh, something that comes to mind is, um, so Phil Caravaggio, who again started PN with me, uh, both he and I had read this little manifesto by a guy named Ray Dalio. So Ray is a mm -hmm. billionaire um, hedge fund manager, runs world's largest hedge fund called Bridgewater. Have you seen his kid's book? I haven't seen the kid's book yet. It's no. really cool. Anyway, carry on. We'll yeah, talk okay, about so it in a little bit. But... I'll tell you the story of the adult book though, um, yeah, yeah. Which, which Phil was instrumental in. So what happened was we, uh, Principles, his best-selling book, it was Amazon book of the year, 2018, um, was a manifesto on their website at one point, just a PDF, you know, just written by Ray, like not professionally right. edited or whatever. And we found this and we're like, man, there's some really brilliant ideas in here. And Phil just, when he finds things like this, he goes to the ends of the earth to meet the people that he mm -hmm. respects in this way. So what he did was he, you know, we've published many books at PN over the years so he took that PDF, had it professionally edited, had one of the best book designers in the world, a guy named Rodrigo Corral, who designed Jay-Z's books. And mm -hmm. you go to Rodrigo's website, he's designed, you know, you'd know 90% of the books he's designed. And so he hired Rodrigo and he made two copies of principles, one for himself and one for Ray. And he went to the ends of the earth to get a copy to Ray. And in the note, he just said, hey, listen, I don't want anything from you. I'm sure lots of people do. I just wanted you to know that this, this manifesto of yours impacted me in really powerful ways. 
Um, so I wanted a professional copy done. So I had it edited and designed and it was beautiful. And he sent it to Ray. Ray ended up getting it, calling him. Uh, Phil was in Rome. He spends a month every year in Italy. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he was like, listen, your book came at the perfect time. I want to meet with you. Can I send my plane to wherever you are to fly you back? So he sent his private jet to Italy, picks up Phil and his wife. They fly back to Connecticut, spend the weekend with Ray. Turns out Ray's wanted to turn principles into a book, uh, but has had some struggles with that. And he's like, I want to hire you to do this. You know, like you already did it. Yeah. Uh, so basically principles came from that. So Phil was like, hey, I got a whole company to run and stuff. So I can't run your book project, but I'm happy to help out and whatever. So Phil was really instrumental. And in the acknowledgments, Ray is really, really generous with praise for Phil about this. And uh, the timing was perfect because shortly thereafter, Phil and I are looking for investors in PN, which we ended up selling the company. Mm -hmm. um, and Ray was like just crucial in giving us advice. And so you think about that relationship, like what does Phil possibly walking in off the street have to offer a billionaire like Ray Dalio? It's very little, you know what I mean? They're, like there's very little that the top mentors in the world that you can give them, right? Mm -hmm. So just start, that's the starting playing field, right? You go, hey, you know, I'm here to learn from this person. But what that person, if they're at the stage in their career where they want to mentor people need and want is young, ambitious, maybe not always even young, mm -hmm. uh, folks who are going to implement, as you said earlier, the advice that they give, right? So I want someone who's trending positive, you know, mm -hmm. I want someone who's a great listener, who, sh who, who knows the, the dynamic in this relationship, um, and who's willing to listen to the things that I've learned and go put them into play, you know, and I, and I think about this all the time, like Amanda's dad, my wife, Amanda is, um, really successful dude who pulled himself up from his own bootstraps kind of guy. And so I've always been impressed and inspired by him. And, uh, you know, I think about it, he's, he's getting up in years. He just retired from his principal professions. And I think it's so sad that his knowledge is will die with him. You know right. what I mean? Here, here's yeah, a guy sure. who's gotten to the top of his craft uh, and he's worked alone the whole time. Like he hasn't you know grown a team or anything like that. But when he, when he stops doing what he does, that knowledge does. just stops with ends, him. you know? And I, I have a physician who's an MD, PhD, he's really talented, and he's retiring soon. I felt the same thing. You're like, man, it's so crazy. I mean, it's, it's why you're like, man, it's why you see people in Silicon Valley and in the tech industry, like mm -hmm. clamoring to digitize neural events and electrical impulses like wouldn't it be cool if you could capture all that knowledge in a digitized format like plug fraser brain into machine and it downloads everything fraser knows take up a lot of memory <laughs> i mean that would be like just a flashcard you could do and you know and then and then you have like and then you compile that with all the other people who had, are in that field and you you can actually get at some principles and truths not on how realistic it is that that's ever going to happen in our lifetime or ever really for that matter but you just think about that um the people who are in that position know it you know what i mean like when you've mastered your craft and you're winding down and you realize you have less time and energy to use what you've learned but you know that what you learned is really valuable i mean this is the paradox right young people have nothing but time they don't have experience. They don't have wisdom. They don't have skill. 
They just have time. Old successful people have wisdom, experience, and skill, but no time. You know, shit. If we could put those two together, it would be amazing. That's what mentorship is, right? It's taking a young, hungry, lots of time and energy person who doesn't have any of the other things and pairing them with someone who doesn't have time and energy, but has the other things. And so it is a beautiful exchange that's mutually beneficial. You just have to understand it for what it is. If you're the one seeking mentorship, you have to show up in the right way. You have to know oh, what I'm giving this person is a chance for their legacy to live on, for their knowledge to be implemented. And if you're just going to hang out and not implement, you know, if you're going to be annoying, if you're going to take more of their time, mm-hmm. see, that's the currency they don't have already. Right. You know what I mean? They're going to be sensitive to that, aren't they? That's right. So, so this is, you know, so when I tell people, I'm like, you have to be respectful of their time. You have to be slightly deferential. Uh, you know, you don't have to always give gifts, you know, but that's been very effective in the past where people actually in this mentor mentee relationship, learn a little bit about me and they give me a cool gift or something that's important to me at this stage in my life, but it doesn't have to be that stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. usually the reward is the exchange where I say, Hey, I, I shared a thing. They went and did it enthusiastically. And then they reported Mm -hmm. back. That's the best gift. Hey, JB, that thing you told me the other day, I don't know if you knew I was listening, but I did. And I went out and I did this with it. And here was the effect of it. And I just want to thank you for that. You know, and, and it just gives me a very positive feeling. And I want to have that interaction with you again. You know what I mean? And, and that leads to a real relationship, which then maybe leads to what people call mentorship. And as a mentor, you're happy. You're so happy to see that person succeed partially because of some of the some of the things you're able to impart, right? Mm-hmm. Like to watch someone take, Hey, they, I mean, they did it themselves, but if they could take, you could just give them just something mm-hmm. to help them because you know, whatever, you've got a connection with them. You like them. There's something about them. You want to see them succeed and then they go and do it mm-hmm. um, as a, as a mentor. That's, that's really what, what you're in it for because at yeah. that stage you don't need the money. You don't need the, right. a little bit of recognition is kind of nice. Yeah. From the, from the person like it. And just, and the joy of watching this young person. Yeah. Watch them soar mm-hmm. is, is exciting. I think yep. that's, that's amazing. I mean, first of all, that story about Phil and Ray, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. I had no idea about that stuff in the background. What an incredible, that's an incredible story. Yeah, it um, really is. And you know, and then all these, it, again, it was one of these simple things where Phil's like, I don't know, this guy probably will never talk to me, but I, simple gesture of thanks leads to friendship, mentorship. You know, Mm -hmm. Phil's been to, uh, when, when there were in-person events, he's been to Ted talks a couple of years in a row with, with Ray as his special guest. And he spends time with his family. And, um, and then, you know, then that leads to Ray giving us great investing advice during COVID, you know what I mean? Uh, Sure. Or advice on private equity companies in the transition with our business. And then I ended up hiring the designer who did Ray's book for my own book. You know what I mean? So all these things end up, you know, coming from that one little relationship, uh, which has been really, really cool, you know? And again, I'm, I'm the last guy to be like, Oh, you know what? Uh, It's so special that I know Ray Dalio, you know what I mean? Because uh, I've always been slightly allergic to this, I don't know, desire to be proximal to famous 
You know what I mean? I've, uh, I remember I've often, you know, when I do my own self and introspect and introspection work gone, why am I so allergic to, I don't know, being around famous people, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, it's one of the reasons why early on, I'm like, you know, I, I used to work with a lot of elite athletes. I'm like, nah, I just don't like this that much. Let me hire some young people who really want to do this, you know? Mm-hmm. And I've always really, really sought out. And I, I trace it back to this, you know, when I was young, uh, like maybe 19 or 20 and I was bodybuilding. And I remember, you know, I read all the bodybuilding magazines and the, you know, the publishers mm-hmm. and Joe Weider right, and sure. Robert Kennedy and all these people. And I remember I was at an event and I competed, I did well. And I had dinner with a bunch of pro bodybuilders and a couple of the famous publishers. And I remember just being so like underwhelmed, you know what I mean? Like um, the ones that I w- was with weren't pr- like the best of the, you know, best of the best, yeah. the, the be- or they weren't the best representations of humanity among the famous in that field, you sure. know? So I was like, Oh, these, these are a little bit slimy people. And right. it, 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 you know, in some ways it just really gave me this very necessary glimpse into behind the curtain, you know, uh, like I got to see what the wizard really was, you know, and it was just this scrawny man, you know, right. and I was like, Oh, this is great. I'm cured. I'm cured of the desire to be proximal to fame, uh, which I think has served me really, really well, you know? So, uh, it's, it's just so happens to be so interesting that, you know, with the, the Ray situation, he happens to be famous and a master of what he does and uh, benefited in a lot of ways. And, but a lot of my mentors, honestly, you know, this is just a great story. You have people never heard of, we'll never hear, you know, they're just mm-hmm. local craftspeople who are excellent, uh, have super high standards. I got to meet them through whatever route. And, uh, you know, I'm, and I'm learning as much, if not more than if it was someone who was on the television, you know? Right. Well, and ultimately, and I want to shift in, in a second, cause you've been talking about Phil a lot and I definitely want to talk about that relationship and, and partnerships, but, and, and I've been like this again from the early, like my first sort of interactions with fame, I realized that there are great people in the world and there are shitty people in the world and it does not matter how much notoriety you have as long as you go back down and boil it down to that like who are the people that are just wonderful to be around and who the people that aren't yeah and notoriety has nothing to do with that there's famous people who just all you want to do is be around them and because they're because of the quality of the person they are and Mm -hmm. there's famous people who the last thing you want to be is around yeah 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 totally quality of person they are not um, and, and, and you know, it, it's hard though, when you have a business, right? Because a lot of people think that, um, you know, whether or not they personally desire to be proximal to fame, mm-hmm. um, they feel like it would benefit their business. Hey, if I get to train X person, mm-hmm. famous Hollywood celebrity, famous athlete or whatever, then business will be good, you know? Mm-hmm. And you and I both know that that's not true either. You know what no. I mean? And uh, in some cases, it is part of a very complicated algorithm. You know what I mean? So it's like one factor in a series of factors that necessarily lead to success, but it's a small one, you know? And that's, and I think that's what a lot of young people in the field are like, they see, let's say famous coaches or whatever, or businesses uh, working with famous people, you know, and think that that is causal. You know, oh, it's because, you know, oh, John Berardi's uh, worked with George St. Pierre. So 
that's why he's so, no, no, I, I, I was well known before I worked with George St. Pierre, you know? Um, so, you know, I think it's just interesting to kind of unpack your own gravitational pull towards various ideas. And again, this is where mentorship comes in so handy. You ask someone who knows, you know what I mean? Right. If you have someone in your life who knows, you can say, hey, scoring the big elite athlete client, is that going to be the lever that like unlocks the rest of my career or not? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So like you said, you know, there's the personal connection. Like, do I want to be around good people or am I willing to be around crappy people because they're famous? You know, and, and the answer might be yes, if you think that they'll help your business in some way. And it's a good um, chance that crappy famous person is going to end up hurting your business. Yeah, that's true. Run, that's, right? that's, that's exactly it. And this is the other part of the athlete thing for me. Mm -hmm. I would always be like, man, <laughs> is this, you know, and I would always take on very, very few athletes, but I'm like, is this athlete ever going to test positive for drugs? Is this athlete ever going to be caught in a domestic violence situation? Sure. You know what I mean? Like, gosh, th those are the ones that hurt your business. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? You're like, once they're outed for any of these things, if you're like, please don't ever mention that I trained them, yeah, <laughs> you know? So, uh, no, again, if your whole business is elite athletes, I get it, right? I'm not speaking to you in this case, but for the general professional in health fitness who does nutrition and training or whatever, these are just things you have to think through and make intentional decisions about, right? Absolutely. So now let's start to shift into this whole idea of partnership, because I think your, your story is, as far as I know it, and I'm, I'm dying to know a little bit more, um, with Phil is you came with different backgrounds, like your partnership has been very complimentary in that mm -hmm. like when you first began, especially, and I'm sure there's been a blending over time, but you know, Phil's expertise um, was in a different, different realm than yours to, to some extent. And I think what precision nutrition, cause you've been a pioneer and I'll say it um, before anyone else even gets a chance to think about it. Precision nutrition was the very first virtual slash digital health and fitness company that I ever knew of, mm -hmm. um, you know, offering, offering support in both nutrition, training, et cetera. And that's in no small part because of Phil and his background. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, as when you're looking up for partners, because we're always, partners are force multipliers for us. The power of finding someone who's aligned with you in some ways, but broaden what your overall um skill or yeah. perspective might be yeah partnership is hard i mean uh, i've you know for every jb and phil story there's a thousand partnerships gone sour stories you know sure and uh and i think you know again a lot of people partner up early in their careers before they really have a, a proper criteria for what partnership should be or what it should mean you know right. in health and fitness the classic partnership is well i met someone who's equally passionate about health and fitness as me. I met them at a conference and we started dreaming up big ideas together. And then we started doing a thing. And the problem with that is if they are interested in the same things you are, um, then essentially you've got uh, two people doing what one person can do and splitting the revenue. That makes it really hard for a business to be successful. You know what I mean? You've got a duplication of effort. Now you have to hire a third person who can do the things neither of you can do, right? Whereas with Phil and I, I mean, Phil was a hobbyist exerciser, you know, and I was a professional 
coach and nutrition person, whatever. And, but what he brought to the table was digital expertise. You know, he was a systems design engineer. So his background prior to meeting me was like building web interfaces for IBM. And then he comes from a a family where his dad um, was the chief operating officer. Like, so he was in, in a deep business uh, background. Right. right. So, so you have this thing that I've never been introduced to on the business side and know nothing about technology. Right. I mean, uh, I laugh lately because it sounds ridiculous to say this, but when we started, people were on dial up internet, you know, yeah. like I remember talking about our early coaching programs where I'm like, yeah, it was challenging to get progress markers because you couldn't upload pictures. Yeah, like it sounds absurd today with the number of pictures people are uploading every single minute, you know? But back then you're like, hey, tell me your weight and I'll send you skinfold calipers so you can tell me the number of your, you know, iliac skinfold because a photo ain't gonna work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so in fact- Describe yourself. That's right. The, <laughs> fun, the funny thing is, you know, when Phil and I first met, his pitch was, Hey man, like you're really a, becoming a thought leader in this space. We should build you a website. And again, there were no expert websites at the time. You know, Charles right. Poliquin uh, didn't have a website at the time. Paul check didn't. And these were the people who came the, the wave just mm-hmm. before me of, of thought leaders. Um, and so he's like, we, we need to build you a website. And, and I was like, well, that'll never work, <laughs> you know? And uh because, again, we're on dial-up. You know, when I wanted to read articles on the internet, you know, T-Mag was the only game in town at the time, Testosterone mm-hmm. Magazine. Yeah. And I would have a textbook because I was a student, and I'd be reading my textbook while I was waiting for the web page to load. And then, you know, there'd be two new articles of the week. And you're like, man, I hope the one I'm about to click on is good because it's going to take 15 <laughs> minutes to load the words. You know what I mean? <laughs> the fingers crossed. So that was then. And he's like, yeah, don't worry, man. Like everyone's going to have broadband inside of two years and this whole game's going to blow wide open. So I, I'm like, all right, cool. We'll give it a shot. So then he's like, I'll teach you how to write HTML code. Because back then you had to know how to code to make a website. Mm. So, you know, Dreamweaver was this piece of software that was, you know, for professional you know, developers. And so I remember like, I bought my copy of Dreamweaver and he taught me how to code websites. And we were doing this in the basement of the house that I rented when I was a PhD student. And yeah, I mean, this is where we started learning, you know, this Mm -hmm. hybrid of, you know, how, how do you take services that were traditionally done in person and put them on the web, you know, uh, not only coaching, but also education, right? I mean, there were only in-person seminars, for health and fitness education, right? And again, the guys I mentioned, Paul and Charles, they were just in, on a plane all year round, going to this town, going to that town, 10 people here, 20 people there, 50 people there, you know? And I just knew that I, it was impossible for me to do that for, mm-hmm. because of my temperament, because of my life goals. Like this, if this is the path to success, I can't do it, you know? And so Phil convinced me that, hey, not only might we be able to do it, in this digital environment, we might be able to do it better. In other words, bigger reach, more mm-hmm. tools at your disposal, right? Right. Um, 
you maybe are missing the in-person interaction, but we're not doing training. So it doesn't have to be a hands-on type of mm -hmm. thing. Um, and I mean, so thankful that he convinced me of that because, you know, really this is the, this is the new standard. You know what I mean? There, there will always be a place for in-person stuff, but um, I mean, now more than ever with COVID and lockouts and shutdowns and all that, you know, there's a real acceleration in, you know, this question. It's like, what nooks and crannies of the world can be done remotely and digitally? Mm -hmm. um, it, it was trending this way already, but this has hastened the inevitable. And, um, and now it's, it's just, re again, a thoughtful series of questions. You know, maybe, maybe we just, as a society, need to make a list, you know, of all the things that could be done remotely and digitally and all the things that just simply can't. Right. And then think about where the opportunities lie, you know? A lot of the things we would have traditionally said can't be done. I mean, big companies are saying you can't do remote work. You know, I remember when we brought on our, our private equity partners uh, in 2017 with PN, um, one of the final candidates were like, well, you know, well, once, once we take over, you know, this little cute remote thing that you guys are doing will end, of course, you know? And we're like, no, no, this is like, I don't know that this company would do fine in the other environment, all we've ever known is remote. All we've ever worked together is remote. All the tools we use are remote. Um, so help me understand, like you think remote can't work at a bigger scale. And the answer for them was yes, remote doesn't work at a bigger scale. And I was like, oh, okay, well, then we can't partner with you. That's like bottom line, right? So that's, that's definitely something I wanted to talk about. So you, you know, so you and Phil, You've got this partnership that, that I mean, he's, he's making you see things that, uh, that, um, that, you know, you've never seen, like you've never considered before. And you're like, ah, that'll never work, but yeah. okay, I guess I'll trust you. Yeah. And, and you're leading the charge in terms of the thought and the content of what it is that precision nutrition is going to go out and, and, and really, you know, scaled nutrition at the time. Cause I remember at the, at, at that time, nutrition was in about 25 different directions. Oh yeah. And, yeah, I mean, and you couldn't, you couldn't get a straight answer. And you weren't allowed anybody. to, you know, that that's mm -hmm. looking back. That's the most interesting thing is that when we launched our nutrition certification, every personal training org in the world, and it's probably right around that time is when you and I maybe met mm -hmm. um, at, at the events were saying, don't talk nutrition. If you're a strength coach, if you're a personal trainer, it was mm -hmm. prohibited, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's, I mean, we've come really quite a long way since then, but yeah, I mean, there was, there was no permission to do no. this in the health and fitness space. And so you set up this thing and, and like I said, pioneer and visionary to do so. And you get it going and you, you envision a, a, a digital solution to this problem. But then, and I remember talking to you as you were first setting up, you were trying to scale your company. And this is where my, my questions around scale come. You make the decision, you just mentioned it, to say our whole company is going to be remote. Mm -hmm. I don't want to work in an office with someone. I really like my life where it's set up. Mm -hmm. You know, Phil's over here. I think our whole company can be remote uh, and and so that's where you really started to scale. And so those are the two things. How do you organize mm -hmm. around something? The organization of your company, I think, is really interesting. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, 
sort of around the same time is when you start to address the scale mm -hmm. of what your business offers were, because yeah. I've, I've actually sat back and admired your work. I mean, your, your technical work for sure, but also your work as a business person in terms of your ability to both scale and reach in a way that I'd never seen any, any, certainly any other fitness company do and arguably any other company do at the level of engagement that you actually have. And I know when we, again, we could talk all day on this particular topic, but mm -hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts on as you come yeah. into that for the people who are out there thinking, okay, how do I scale me? Mm -hmm. Right? Like I've yeah. got this new little virtual training business. How, how do I, how do I think about scale? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, yeah. I'll turn you loose on it. Well, I, I want to finish on the partnership thing because it's actually mm. super relevant to this. You know, I mean, sort of, you know, where I was headed with that was just, you know, when choosing a partner, if choosing a partner, and I know lots of people who don't choose a partner, you know, why, like the thought is why choose a partner in the first place? Like what you like partnership sounds great in those terms, but let's put it this way. Who are you willing to split all the money with? That's what a partner is. You know what I mean? Sure. Like you might split 50, 50, you might split 80, 20, whatever the case is, mm -hmm. but why would you split money with anyone is the question. Mm -hmm. You have to have a good answer to make someone a partner, right? Of course, everyone wants to be the partner. If there's a vision of a big upside or whatever, every, right. and, and whenever you like you go to a company and you ask each individual in the company, what percentage they think, uh, they've contributed to the re generation of revenue. Uh, if you add up all the percentages, it's like a hundred million percent. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Everyone overvalues their uh, value relative to the amount of money that's made as a result of the value they contribute. Mm -hmm. But you know, if you're starting the thing, then you get to call these shots. So I mean, I, I have some friends who never brought on a partner because they um, were like, "Hey, I can hire consultants or team members." as I make money to help, right? Cause that's what you need. You need help. Yeah. I and mean, that, that leads to the scale thing, right? I can't reach more people if all my time is spent not reaching people, you know? Okay. Um, and so with partnership, it's just be really thoughtful. If you bring someone on to split the money in half, you have to have a conception or some idea or some believable path to the addition of them doubles the revenue, right? So if I'm doing a thing and I make a hundred grand a year and I'm like, Fraser, I want to, I want to partner with him. I have to believe that adding you will very quickly grow the pot that. to 200,000. Right. If not by partnering with you, I'm making less money. Right. So that's what partnership has to be. And then, I mean, again, that's, if we're talking about businesses, the, the point is to create goods and services that people give you money in exchange for, mm -hmm. um, then partnership has to be financially considered. And then you start thinking about, okay, cool. Then if I'm going to partner with someone that I believe can grow the pot to at least double and then more synergistically, way more than double eventually, right. um, what, what, what else has to work? You know, and that's where value systems have to line up. You have to know that we're going to share similar values. Uh, we have to know that our commitments to the project are similar, right? If I feel like it's the only thing I'm doing and I'm putting my whole heart and soul into it, but it's just a side gig for you, that'll become mm -hmm. problematic over time. So I have to know we have the same level of buy-in and commitment. Mm -hmm. uh, I also have to know what's going on in your life is kind of uh, 
allows for that kind of commitment, right? If I'm a young guy, 28, no family, no other obligations, this is what I do, and you're married and have four kids, which is my life right now, right. And, and I can't invest the kind of time you will, that's a problem. You know, so you have to really think through all the things, not mm -hmm. just sort of myopically looking at the world through a straw about your business or your clients. It's, is this the person that I'm willing to split everything with? You know, and yes is only the right answer if our addition becomes like a synergistic one plus one equals three. Um, if an, another uh, criterion is, does it take a bunch of work off of my plate that I am uniquely bad at, mm -hmm. don't enjoy? And when that person does it, it will grow the pod, you know? And then third, will we get along? I mean, I, in the early days, uh, I would talk to Phil way more than I talked to Amanda, my now wife. You know what I mean? He, I had a more time spent together relationship than I did with my then girlfriend. And then we got married. And before we had kids, I probably, then it became kind of equal. I spent as much time with Phil as I did with Amanda. And, you know, now it's obviously shifted, but mm -hmm. I'm going to spend a lot, a lot of time. You know, I mean, there's probably times where Phil and I, three, four hours a day, we're mm -hmm. speaking can I stand this person for that long? You know, can right, they stand sure. me? You know, so partnership, again, it feels so fun to dream up big ideas with someone who shares your um, expertise, mm -hmm. but that's usually the wrong kind of person to take on as a partner. You know what? Save that for the conference, mm -hmm. go to dinner, get excited together, talk yeah. about big ideas, and then come back down to earth and say, great, when it comes to implementation, I need someone who has the business training or the technology training, or if you have those things, the you know, technical training mm -hmm. to be able to pull this off, you know? Right. Um, and uh, so that, that's the partnership, and a, the partnership thing. And I think that translates nicely into then the org and the scale thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, er, in the early days, PN was basically me and Phil, and we were just hiring people as we could afford them to help out, right? And, and it got to a point where we were about 25 total right. on the team. And it was untenable, you know, like, because we had structured it for the needs of a early startup, if you will, right. right? Everyone milling around, waiting till Phil and JB told them what to do, you know? <laughs> Um, and, uh, and that's not to diminish their contributions because we couldn't have done all the things that we were doing at the time without them, but it was just the organization was set up, you know, and when I think of org structures, it's really just how we are together, right? How the employees and team members of a company act together, right. what the rules are for engagement, you know, who are the, um, owners of ideas and projects, these kind of things. And, you know, when it was that, Phil and I were having no fun because there were 25 people every day, you know, some distribution of 10 and 15 or 12 and 13 mm -hmm. coming to him or coming to me asking for what to do. And I couldn't do what I do. You know what I mean? I was right. busy telling everyone else what to do. And then it's a really bad situation because I'm probably the most valuable producer in the company. And instead of producing, I'm telling people who are less valuable producers than me what to do and managing their experience. Uh, so then the work is a level lower than what I could produce. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so it becomes challenging, right? And every, this isn't unique to our company. Every org faces this, right? So that's when we started looking for a solution. And, and for us, the right solution was something that's called holacracy. And it's, it, I mean, it's a fancy name that's just attached to what's called a uh, distributed authority system. Nowadays in companies that are primarily focused on knowledge work, you know, you have really talented, skilled, well-trained people. And if in our case, we are a remote company, right? So we are like, we can recruit from anywhere in the world, which means we have no geographic limitations. We can hire the best person from, um, you know, Italy or from Spain or from South America or from Canada or from the U.S., wherever. We just got to find a great person. Something the rest of the world is just figuring out. That's right. Um, and so we were like, okay, we can do that. That's great. Now, when you hire these great people, mm-hmm. um, you know, at the time we couldn't pay them competitive rates, right? Right, Because we're small and uh, we don't have big corporate money. But what we can offer is non-monetary compensation, which is great work environment, remote work, live where you want, mm-hmm. um, flexible hours, right? Like we don't track your hours that, you don't have to show your boss you're here today. We're just measuring performance, right? And so in the early days, we hired some really outstanding people who were making two, three, four hundred thousand dollars a year elsewhere, come take 50% and more pay cuts just so that they could have a different lifestyle. You know, when you have those kind of people that make that kind of a choice, right? I'm willing to make less money. I just want a better work environment and a better work-life balance or whatever you want to call it. Um, And who are highly trained and and really smart micromanaging them in a traditional hierarchical relationship is a problem. I mean, that's what they're escaping from. Right. Mm -hmm. So for us, it was like, you know, how do we create an org structure that respects their independence and autonomy, which is why they took a pay cut to come here. Mm -hmm. And there's their smarts, their intelligence, their competence. And that's where this holacracy, this sort of idea of um, distributed authority, right? You're the authority of the domain that is your role. So we have to get really clear on what the roles are within the organization, who does what, make it explicit. There's no implicit like, oh, this is how things are done around here, but we never talk about it. And that's what happens a lot in hierarchical works, you know? Um, And with holacracy, there's this concept that's always resonant with me called dissociating role from soul right? So this is my role. And that's just a subset of who I am as a human, you know, and it was particularly and immensely helpful for me because historically it would have been like, hi, I'm John Berardi. I'm the nutrition guy who founded precision nutrition. And now it's like, Oh, that precision nutrition stuff. If this big circle is all of John Berardi, that's just a small circle within that. And then there's all the other roles that I have in my life and in my work, you know? Sure. Um, and you make this all very explicit and it gives us some great rules for being together, right? If let's say I work for you, you might be the uh, lead link of a particular working group. Okay. And lead link's just a term that we would use for um, a specific set of roles. So you're responsible for the budget of that working group, right? So in a traditional hierarchy, that would make you the boss, but you weren't really the boss of people's work in your circle, you just decided the budgets. You know what I mean? So you're responsible for that, but you couldn't walk in when someone was doing a piece of, I don't know, let's say web design and go, nah, you should do it a different way. First of all, you're not trained or competent in that. 
Uh, second of all, it'd be really annoying and would undercut the autonomy and authority of the person who we hired and because we thought they were better than you at that. You know what I mean? Um, just because you were higher up, right, in a hierarchic, hierarchical relationship in regular workplaces, that privilege is given to you. But in the way that we organized, it's, it's not. You, you can certainly bring up any tensions or challenges you have with the work that's being done. Anyone mm -hmm. can at any time but you're not in charge of that, right? So it just became this really interesting way of gathering smart people, collaborating with smart people without these traditional hierarchies, power plays. And ultimately, I mean, what are we saying if uh, there's someone who's a boss mm. and they start telling someone who works for them uh, what to do? We're saying that I hold the key to your job. And if you don't do it my way, I just take away your job. Mm -hmm. And in the precision nutrition environment, that isn't held by anyone except for the person who holds that. And it's not the person who holds the budget in your working group. It's someone in the HR department. You know what I mean? Right. So it's just a whole different way of thinking about work that I think works really well for remote, that works really well for knowledge work, and works really well for people who are doing working in these kind of environments, either out of passion uh, for the field or out of a desire for a different kind of work style. And so that, that led to this, the, the unique org concepts at PN that we're super proud of and had so much fun working with it, you know? Um, and sometimes have such a hard time explaining, you know? You almost have to live the experience to mm -hmm. really understand why it's different. Um, you know, uh, what's, her, what's her last name? Uh, the tidying up woman, Marie Kondo, is that her name? She's got a Netflix right. show about it. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, she's doing a, a new book uh, with a organizational, uh, I think he's a professor of business and organizational science or something like that. So I was interviewed by him recently for the book. And I remember talking about this stuff and he was like, this is so great. This is so fascinating. And then um, within the next month, he went and interviewed a bunch of PN team members which really? is super cool, right? Because they reached out really to me. Cool. Yeah. yeah, because he wanted to verify whether it was as cool as I was saying that it was. Like, is this right. all just bullshit? Is this, is this a normal organization with fancy terminology? And, and I loved how well it went, you know, because this isn't just leadership saying how great it is here. This is actually the all members of the team saying, hey, we certainly have our challenges like all people who have to be together do, but this is a really cool way of working, you know? And, and that leads me to the scale thing, right? Like our vision is that uh, you can do world-class work if you have a big group of people who are being together in productive ways. Mm -hmm. And those people are screened and put into roles based on the use of their unique abilities. Um, and so that's a thing we spend a lot of time on. It's what I teach a lot of now with Changemaker, you know, unique abilities being the thing that uh, you are or have the potential to be world-class at, that you also enjoy, right? Because there's stuff we're good at that we don't like doing every day. Um, and you can see yourself really wanting to do for the rest of your life. And then third, it makes a difference when you do it, right? So unique abilities are this, it's like, I am really good at this or I'm going to be really soon. I love it. I just want to keep getting better. And when I do it, it moves the needle. It either mm -hmm. makes the company more money or um, it helps us have more reach or helps us have more impact in lives, whatever your metrics of meaning are, right? So, you know, I just 
you know, say, think, imagine a company where you're doing that and that feels good, right? And it allows you to do that. It screens for that. And then you know the person on your left is doing it in their unique ability set, which is different than yours. And the person on your right is doing it and they're in their unique ability set and you can trust them. You're not like, oh, when I hand this work off to so-and-so, they're gonna shit the bed, you know? No, they're in their unique abilities too. And then we have an organization, a way of being together that really backstops all of that, you know? Then you have the potential to do big, meaningful, high, high, high level work. You know, and then that's where you can talk about scaling, right? Scaling only happens when you're doing stuff so well, right? That the larger group of people take notice, Mm -hmm. right? And so for PN, scaling often came from content, right? Like we built, that was one of my roles. It was one of my last roles at the company that I handed off. It was the, the actual last role before I stepped out of operational work altogether was my role as sort of editor-in-chief at PN. Mm-hmm. And because it's one of my most fun roles and it's what I was really good at and it was what I was worried if we didn't really transition it well, it would kill the company, mm-hmm. right? This is how we built this thing. This is how we scale. This is how we reach. This is the uh, conduit through pe- that through which people come to pay. Right. You know, and this is potentially our, how we can kill it if we're not careful. That's exactly right. right. You know, yeah. we, we do this badly and then this thing, it dive bombs, you know, mm-hmm. or, or we're like, Hey, you know, we do content so well, you know, private equity company comes mm-hmm. in. This content is so great. I mean, this is as good as anyone else's paid content. You see where this is going, right? Mm-hmm. We should I start do. charging for it, you know, and then what happened? You know? So for me, it was like, okay, cool. You know, let's install a, team who can do content and, and I'm so proud because it's two and a half years now and I think the team is actually growing the content production capability and the quality it's it's better than what I was doing at the time I'm certain of that the infographics the free courses the videos the animated videos it's amazing you know I, I have mm-hmm. a little point of pride where I'm like hey I was I was the one who made the template for all these things right but I mean the team is twice the size they're super talented uh, the person we hired to replace me is Adam Campbell, who's, you know, just world-class and um, just, you know, that was the vehicle for scale, right? Continue to create free resources that extend beyond the traditional topics and boundaries of what nutrition, you know, free nutrition articles would look like so that more and more people you know, in the inner group, you know, the hardcore, share it with the people just on the fringe of the inner mm-hmm. group. And then those people are so enamored by it, they share it with those people just, so it's like a rippling effect across a quiet lake. And um, then those people on the outer rims of the, of the, mm-hmm. the waves, right, um, are so attracted that they start moving towards the inner circle. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, PN now is starting to get to the point where they're certifying um, a large percentage of people who don't even work in the field. Right. They're just, they're just recreationally into fitness and they're like, "Ah, I don't know if I want to work in the field or not, but these people do education so well that I'd like to learn from them and then Mm -hmm. I can make a decision, you know, and that's really cool to me. Right. We're not just servicing the people who are going to show up anyway. We're actually attracting people who are not sure, but we might be their first interaction. 
you know, with health and fitness for the professional. Absolutely. And you know what you say, I just want to reiterate it because on my list of things I wanted to talk with you about, or at least wanted to mention, you just, you just kind of went through them. That's why I was, I was grinning the way you went about attracting people through the pre the free content, you would write an ebook on something that was, that was interesting or emerging. Um, I remember you, you doing your own, um, using, using your own body as a Guinea pig for, Mm -hmm. um, uh, for the intermittent fasting book. And and also it came to my mind as we were talking about the attention to infographics that you guys did that you would put out to the world. I wonder how many refrigerators have a PN Mm -hmm. infographic plastered to it. I'll bet it's, it's, it's hundreds of thousands of them and, and maybe more than that. But, um, so you scaled your business. The free content model is something that, um, you know, to try and pull people into your paid services is something I think you've done better than, than anybody. So now you go through the process of selling your business and then you're, you're confronted with what's next. So I've, I've, I haven't got all the way through it yet, but I've started reading your, um, your change maker book. I think it's fantastic. And as I go through it, it is literally, I mean, section by section, a how to guide. I mean, it, the sections are actually titled how to, mm-hmm. um, how to succeed as a, as a fitness professional, I would say even beyond that. Can, can you talk a little bit about like, what was the inspiration to go from PN into change maker? Like, what was mm-hmm. it that, why was that the, the, the thing that you kind of transitioned to right after? Yeah. Well, what, what had happened for years, uh, Phil was like, Hey man, you have to write a book. Um, you know, and I've written books that are sort of nutrition and all, all the other stuff, but like a, a bigger kind of coaching and success in the field, you know, and he's, he's always in my ear being like, dude, you've done everything there is in the field. Like you, you've won national competitions in fitness and physique stuff. You have a PhD, you, you know, uh, worked with all these elite athletes and you can name and, um, you know, you've talked at all the big events and, you know, you've certified and coached and Mm -hmm. yeah, like you're the ultimate fitness professional. Like if there's someone starting out, who's like, I'd like to have success in this field. They, they could dream of doing what you did. Right. Mm -hmm. So we'll write a book on that. And he's like, I think it'd be really good for PN. So I was like, oh, okay, okay. And I'm always dragging my feet on that because, you know, it's not like I'm not doing anything else right, with sure. four kids and the business to run and all this stuff, yeah. right? So uh, when, you know, we started looking for a financial partner, you know, the intention wasn't to sell PN, just, you know, mm-hmm. for the record. Uh, it was just, hey, PN is getting so big so fast that two individuals and their personal fortune or whatever, mm-hmm. um, Oh, we, Phil and I couldn't have personally floated PN through two bad months, right? right. Like the yeah. amount of the cost of just like team members and the ongoing costs, if something bad would have happened and revenue plummeted, mm-hmm. like PN would have not lasted very long off our right. own wealth. Cause most of our wealth is in the company. Right. Mm-hmm. So we realized, man, we'd love to be a more resilient organization. You know I mean? We were, we were towards the tail end there, like $10 million in annual revenue. We would just put in an account just in case, just in case something bad happened. Now imagine what you could do marketing wise, team member wise, Mm -hmm. like that's a lot of money that you could invest, but it was on the shelf simply because if something happened and this is really relevant now, isn't it? Because Mm -hmm. COVID happened, 
right? Yeah. Lots of businesses didn't have something in case something happened. And PN would have been fine for a while, you know, if, if COVID was the kind of thing that would take that business down. Right. Um, so we start looking around, we're like, hey, maybe we'll find some investors who could help us just free up a bit of that money. Mm-hmm. And when we started looking, there were actually a lot of companies, a hundred companies express interest, I think 35 bid, you know, so we had the pick of the litter. It was beautiful. You know, we narrowed it down to That's our That's the popular three. guy at the dance. That's right. That's it, right? <laughs> um, it, it was like, it was like um, you know, a, a real estate market that's really hot for sellers. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're like, hey, we listed our house. We're only taking offers this day and people yeah. are in a bidding war, right? That's what it eventually happened. So, so then we were like, hey, well, this is interesting, obviously, right? People want to pay us a large sum of money for this thing, uh, what could our terms look like? Like, how could we get the best of all the worlds here? How can we make sure the company's good? And how can we make sure we're good? And how can we make sure, you know, the original goal of having this resiliency is, is achieved? Uh, and so we ended up choosing a partner that we thought would be best for that. And again, we didn't have to do this. There was literally, you know, we were supposed to close the deal on a Tuesday in December in 2017. And Phil called me on the Friday and he's like, I don't think I can go through with it, man. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, I, don't, I was already really counting. Healthy. I was, I was exactly. already counting the dollars in my head. Right. And it was close to a $200 million transaction. So mm-hmm. I'm like, uh, could you walk me through your thinking process? <laughs> Cause you know, I don't want to be like, dude, yeah. don't do this to me. You know, can you help me understand why I'm not going to get my $100 million next week. And uh, so we like, the point being, it wasn't inevitable that we sold. We didn't have to, and there was a chance we didn't. You know, the, the point is we ended up doing this for, for those reasons. So then this happens, right? And it's like, okay, cool. Now what? I don't know what to do next, right? I mean, I know I'm going to help the company transition. And I was like, oh, this might be a good time to write that book I keep promising everyone. So I sit down and try and write the complete fitness professional book. And I realized I don't want to write that book. You know, and I'm like, and now that we've sold the company and financially I'm good, I don't have to write that book, (laughs) you know? So I'm like, what if I just created a resource that captured everything I, everything I think I've learned in the last 30 years in this business, you know, everything from the industry itself, where do I think it is? Where do I think the challenges are and the opportunities? It uh, harkens back to what we talked about earlier, but pulling, pulling all that, capturing everything in your head. That's right? it. That's it's exactly the same it. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, what if there was a USB thing I could plug right, into yes. my brain and download? And this is what made it so hard to write and capture authentically what I think I've learned. Mm-hmm. Because what I, what I realized in the writing of that book in particular is that it's so easy as you're trying to tell your truths to sort of try and smooth the difference between them and whatever popular lore is at the time about what business should be. Right. Right. Like it's, there's certain things you're supposed to say nowadays. There's certain things you're supposed to say around COVID. There's certain things you're supposed to say about racism in America right now. Mm -hmm. There's certain things you're supposed to say about entrepreneurship right now. It's really hard and people don't understand what I do. And entrepreneurship is lonely. You know, there's just certain little cliches you're supposed to say for every one of these public facing scenarios. And I, and I would find myself writing my truth and then being like, well, that maybe, Am I saying that because it's really true or because I'm trying to square it with what you're supposed to say about these topics Mm -hmm. now? Um, 
And so, I mean, every day I would write my thing and then I'd be like, do I really believe this? You know? And some days it'd be like, yes. And some days it'd be like, no, I got to rewrite, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, but it was this idea of authentically capturing what I think I've learned over the last 30 years, not just saying what I think everyone needs, wants to hear or what'll be well received. Um, and then in like, you know, you know, so then I covered career and then I covered coaching and then I covered business and then education and reputation, you know, all the things I think someone has to create building blocks, like a staircase towards if you want to have success in the field, you know? And so it was that, you know, I, I had a miserable time writing that book, miserable because of what I just described. <laughs> Yet I was, well, sounds like an exhausted process, but I'm sure on yeah. the far end and I bet you're going right there right now. How do you feel? Oh, so, so proud, man. I'm like, yeah. gosh, it was, it was excruciating doing this and more proud of this than anything I've ever done. Like I look at the design now, again, I worked with this Rodrigo guy who's mm -hmm. designed uh, Ray Dalio's book and Jay-Z's right. book and all these phenomenal books. And I think we did a beautiful job with the book. So when I look at it, I'm in love with how it looks. And then when I read it, I go, gosh, this was so hard getting to this, you know, this interweaving of PN experience with advice, with the resources, you know, like all the lessons and activities, you know, Nate Green, who I talked about earlier. So what I did was, you know, there's this concept I teach in it called thinking aloud. And we've done this at PN for years. It comes from web usability research where you build a website. And one of the best ways to find out how usable it is, is just give it to like 10 people and ask them to narrate their experience while you have them perform tasks on the site. So mm -hmm. let's say you have a commerce site and so you have someone come on and you go, Hey, I want, uh, I want you to buy X, read Y and do Z. Right. But here's the catch while you're doing it, narrate your experience. You got to talk it out. Yeah. So that if you're pissed, you're going to know right away. Like, yeah, that's right. So I'm typing this. in, you know, www.fraser.com. Uh, man, this site's taking a while to load. That's right. weird. Okay, whatever. Yeah. Uh, all right. Oh, finally, finally, it's loaded. So already I know your site's too slow, right? And then, okay, cool. Now I have to read this article. Now, usually the articles are in the upper right-hand thing. I don't see articles anywhere. Uh, maybe it's under blog. Can't find it. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, I'm going to click blog. And so the people just tell you all the problems as they narrate their experience. So when I learned that, I started wondering, could I apply that to everything that I do? Articles, infographics, business ideas. Uh, so thinking allows is such an important part of what I did. And then the ultimate challenge was, can I do that with my book? Can I get 15 people from all walks of life, different experience levels, some work in fitness, some not? How can I get someone to think aloud my book? Because that'd take forever. Mm -hmm. It'd be hard to consume all that. So what I did was I ended up sending a Google Doc to each of those 15 people. And I said, don't, you don't have to narrate your experience, but just drop comments, right? Mm -hmm. Like when people mark up a Google yeah. document. And uh, don't edit it. I have professional editors. What mm -hmm. I want you to do is say what you're thinking and feeling as you're reading through it, right? Like this is dumb. This is false. This is true. My God, you nailed it. Funny joke. Get rid of this joke. So just right. how you're feeling as, as you experience the thing. When I finished that, there were like, I think, uh, 2,000 comments from my 15 reviewers. But they fundamentally changed the book sure. um, yeah. for the better. And I remember Nate being one of the reviewers, and he was just like, my God, you gave away everything Precision Nutrition does on the inside. You know, like 
unique ability stuff and value stuff and goal stuff and mentorship stuff and education pathways and coaching curriculum creation. He's like, people are not going to know what a gift they've just gotten for 20 bucks on Amazon, you know? And that was, I mean, that hit home because that, that was the point. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do next professionally. I may not work in health and fitness ever again. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, this would be a great capstone to my career to capture all that stuff, give people the lessons and the scripts and everything, mm -hmm. you know, and, but then the problem came, which is when I was done the book, I was like, man, there's so much more to teach. And uh, <laughs> the, the publishers were mad because they're like, your book is heavy and it's expensive to produce. And, uh, and, and that was before we cut it in half, you know what I mean? And they still think it's heavy and expensive to produce. So like, there's so much more to teach. And then, you know, so that's when I, uh, pulled a group together of young people who I like to mentor mm -hmm. and create a change maker Academy, which is sort of the extension of the book. There's going to be courses and events and all kinds of cool things. And, you know, I, I spend very little time on that per week because I have this amazing team. So the, mm -hmm. the vision was mine and sort of, they just check in with me periodically, you know? Yep. So, uh, so it looks like I'm going to be involved in the industry for a little bit longer, but yeah, I mean, the book was, the book was really my big though, heavy lift of the last few years. And like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm so stoked about it. You know, I've mentioned this a lot in our conversation so far, but I'm just big on intentionality like thinking things through, figuring out what your goals are, and then sort of having intentions. So my intention for the book was to create a beautiful physical object and capture everything I, I think I've learned that I think will help people um, in, in their own journey in the field. And, and I said very specifically, I wrote it out. I don't care how many it sells. I don't care if it makes any lists. I'm not going to compare it to other people's sales and books. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm trying to do. Right. And so it's certainly exceeded that. And then, you know, then all this other interesting stuff happened. Like it sold a lot of copies and there's like, you know, 350 five-star reviews on Amazon, no one star, no two star, only one three star. Mm -hmm. So it seems like people really liked it too. Yeah. And again, part of the definition of success here was not that, you know, I'm like, right. I don't care yeah. if anyone likes you it. You didn't define do it that. For that reason. Right. But it's but, good to know. It's nice. It's nice that, you know, what I created, people uh, also enjoyed quite a lot and say that it's had far reaching impact on not only their business, but on their way of being in the world, which is super cool. Cause I just, I just don't think there's a difference between being successful in business and being a successful parent and being a successful coach and being a successful human. You know, I think the same principles, carry across all, you know, and, and generally I think of them as at least the parenting, coaching leadership. Mm -hmm. It's just effectively being with people, you know, it's all I mean? relationships, same yeah. skill, uh, the same thing that helps a client move forward. will help your child move forward and will help a team member move forward. It's the same principles. Maybe the words are just different, you know? And so that for me is like, I really wanted to capture the fundamentals here rather than just tactics. There's lots of tactics out there, but you know, uh, if you capture the fundamentals, then you really strike at the core of what helps people. And then also you create something that's timeless. Like I'd love to see this book still selling 15 years from now. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, um, as I said 
to your earlier, my first interaction with it, and I haven't got all the way through it yet, is has been unbelievable. And I think, I mean, I can't wait to finish it. And even more so now that I've heard you talk so passionately about it, because I know, I know what kind of work you you've yeah. obviously did, but but now I know some of the backstory. So I'm even I think more I think you'll love. I might have to go back to the start and, <laughs> and, and read it again. I, th- I think you'll love the sections. You know, it's it's a bit of a linear book, right? So mm-hmm. the intro about the field and then the career stuff. You know, I, I've had a few friends who are advanced in their career be like, oh, I started it and then I kind of petered out. And I'm like, oh, that's because you you read the stuff for beginners, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, go read. You didn't I get think, to the part that, that's relevant you. to you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so Stu McMillan, good friend of mine who runs Altis, which is sort of the world's leading track and field training center mm-hmm. um, and, and a super close friend. He lives in Arizona, which is you know where we spend Very the winters. Um, and... Uh, he was like my only friend who didn't read the book for like the longest time. And, uh, and we, I would always tease him about it. And then one day he's like, yeah, but it's not for someone like me. Right. And then a couple days later, he called me and apologized. He's like, dude, that was dumb to say, I don't even know why I said it. And then I went back and read your book and I was like, holy crap. So then he wrote this huge positive review that uh, a lot of people were talking about. And I was like, it was a really cool feeling because I'm like, oh yeah, this is striking at every level. So anyway, for you, I think you really love the reputation, which is one of the last ones Mm -hmm. uh, and the business sections. You know, when you get to those, I think the juices will really be popping for you. Whereas stuff about the industry and the intro, uh, you probably already have a good grasp of, you know what I mean? So, so really you're just nodding along going, I believe that too. But I think when you get to the latter chapters, the, the juices will be popping and you'll be having fun. I'm, I'm certain of it. I can't wait. I can't wait to get all the way through. Well, I want to be respectful of your time for sure. But so before we wrap off, we always, I like to finish with this five and five thing. Okay. Let's I got do five, it. five questions for you. Okay. Um, the first thing, uh, what are you most excited about uh, or focused on in your own training right now? Yeah. In my own training. Uh, now it's particularly interesting time because I just spent like a couple months with 30 pound kettlebell only. We were in a rental house. I had no access to gym or equipment, but I found a 30 pound kettlebell. Uh, so I'm just excited to be lifting weights right now. But I, what I'll say is during that 30 pound kettlebell era, you know, it was really interesting because I worked on a lot of qualities that I wouldn't spend time on anyway. You know, I worked on a ton of mobility. I worked on a lot of body control. I've worked on a lot of single limb stuff, single mm-hmm. side stuff, um, uh, because I, I didn't have a lot of weight. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so I was finding ways to achieve, uh, adaptation, to reach fatigue, to build skill. Um, right. And, and I want to work out every day just for peace of mind and mm-hmm. sanity. And so I, I really developed a lot of interesting sort of changes, morphological changes, mental changes from that. So I'm really grateful for that period. And, but now, like we just got back to Canada a month ago, we have a little home gym out in the garage here. I'm just so excited to like lift heavy weights right now. And tomorrow's actually my birthday and I usually do something absurd on my birthday. So I'm still concocting what that might look like. <laughs> and you know what, before I meant to talk with you before we got on, but I actually had not wish you a, a, a proper happy birthday. Yet. I'm Thanks, excited to, to be talking on today. It was pretty cool. Uh, who are you currently inspired by or what are you currently inspired by? Yeah. Um, right now I've been inspired by some children's book authors. I mean, it's a, it's a little passion project of mine. I've been writing some children's books with our family. Um, and, uh, and there's a couple authors who I'm just so enamored with right now and their work and their stories and how they create the kind of work that they do for the 
for the young people. Mm -hmm. So there's a guy who's written this book called the wild robot, um, that I absolutely love. Uh, and I've been reading with our eight year old, um, a woman who wrote this book Pax. uh, that is, I mean, they're young reader classics Mm -hmm. and, uh, I'm just so interested in how they craft stories for young people in this particular way. So yeah, that's, that's, I've been listening to tons of children's book podcasts and stuff. So that's really what's floating around my mind right now. That's super cool. So you've got the whole day to yourself to do whatever it is that you want to do. What do you do? Oh yeah. Um, that happens so infrequently. In my life. <laughs> I know. That's what I <laughs> uh, you know what? My, uh, Amanda always makes fun of me and says like, you just want to be old, don't you? Uh, because I, I would literally rock in a rocking chair, read a book, you know, on a nice breeze out on a porch. I'd probably, as we talked about, I'm learning piano. So I'd probably play some piano. I'd probably drink some tea. I'd probably read a book on a rocking chair. I might go for a walk. You know, I'd probably get a training session. That would probably be my only non-octogenarian effort of the day. But, but essentially, I can just see myself like full-fledged, you know, retiree in their 70s and 80s living that lifestyle. I love lots of quiet introspection time. I'm an introvert. That's my ideal day right there. Awesome. Well, it sounds like a, a, just good, good recovery. Good for the yes. soul. So what are your greatest physical passions outside of traditional fitness? Yeah. I mean, right now it's stuff that I can do with our children, you know, like uh, earlier in the conversation, uh, the kids came in with their brand new BMX helmets. So I love going biking with them, trail riding, mountain biking. When we're in Arizona, we do some cool stuff in the desert and the hills, mm-hmm. you know, so that kind of stuff is really, really fun. We spend a lot of time out on the water at our cottage. We have a jet boat, so we're out e-boarding, water skiing, and stuff yeah, sure. like that, paddling, kayaking, mm-hmm. stand-up paddle boarding, that kind of stuff. So, you know, outside of the gym, it's that. You know, I, I have over the last decade competed frequently in track and field as a mm-hmm. master's level sprinter. Uh, I'm on a little bit of a hiatus right now because just really tracks are closed and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I'd be doing a lot of that if I had access. Uh, right. Cause it's something the kids can come and do also. They always come to the right. track and train with me when I'm doing my training. So it's, it's, you know, so right now it's those kind of things. It's getting out on a bike, getting in the hills and the trails uh, or getting out on the water. So you're in an amazing spot right now. Two and a half years ago, you sold the thing that you'd spent the last, you know, the previous probably 20 years building, just written your book, started the Academy. What's next? Yeah, I think uh, as we talked about before we started recording, I mean, and during the recording, children's book stuff is happening, you know, um, helping the team out with the Changemaker Academy. And then um, some of the development stuff I've been interested in too. I've been interested in sort of sustainable housing development. So a big project we're working on right now is a 300 home subdivision uh, outside of between London and Woodstock, Ontario. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's another fun thing for now, you know, all of them, I have great teams. So I just like flit in and out of those projects as required, you know, but uh, they're all things that um, or at least two out of the three that I'm a relative beginner at, which is super fun, you know, mm-hmm. flexing that beginner's mind, you know, over and over again. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those are the big three right now. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the TRX Procast. As a thank you, we'd like to offer you 30 days of free access to the TRX Training Club, which features hundreds of amazing workouts with some of the best trainers in the world.
Get your access by the link in the episode description below.